HVAC 360 is brought to you today by Lunch Lady Roach Coaches. With school cafeterias turning into fast food warming kitchens, lunch ladies are losing their jobs at an alarming rate. To combat this injustice, the fine folks over at Roach Coach International, purveyor of more than edible food to job sites globally, announces its newest franchise, the Lunch Lady Roach Coaches. Forget that packing. Forget dealing with those fancy so-called food trucks or that unreliable apprentice to get your order right. Get your meals hot, ready, and with a hairnet. Daily specials include sloppy joes, turkey, potatoes, and gravy, beans and franks, and let's not forget our ever-popular Friday favorite, cheese sheet pizza. That's right, no crust, super thin, and extra greasy. Support your local lunch ladies at your job site today. Welcome back, Matt Nelson here, your host for HVAC 360, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. Each week, I'm either sharing information and lessons learned from the field or talking with industry experts, but I don't stop there. No, no siree. I want to encourage you to double down on your weekly helping of HVAC knowledge by hopping on over to HVAC360.com and joining my growing community of people just like you. So, What's up for this week? This week, we're going to talk to Thomas Cocker, who is a, uh, a commissioning engineer, and a really great story of how he became uh, one of those. Uh, there's really so many gems in here. I want to make sure that you listen to the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I got to give special props to Thomas uh, for actually doing this interview, uh, not once, but twice. Uh, yes, I goofed up and didn't record the episode until we were almost all the way through. Um, yikes. Uh, fortunately for everyone, Thomas was gracious enough to stick around and do it again, all 45 minutes worth for those keeping track at home. Uh, so a big thank you for him, uh, for giving me another chance. And, uh, let's just, uh, enough of chit chat. Uh, let's just get to the tape. All right. Today we're talking with Thomas Cocker, who is a commissioning engineer for Page Sutherland Page. How are you doing today, Thomas? I'm good. All right. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your journey, how you got into commissioning and, and what you did? Um, well, so it, it pretty much all started back at university. Um, our, my university essentially had interviews that you could do on campus. You just sign up and then you can uh, sign up for a slot and then you can go interview with a bunch of different companies. And um, one of them happened to be engineered air balance and um, the interview went well and, you know, they gave me the, the highest offer out of the rest of them. So uh, basically it came down to money. And so I, I just took that uh, position and um, I, I got lucky because uh, I started out in the field of test and balance and got to see the industry from the field first and then from there, um, you know, through the years, I, I heard how good, uh, you know, how one would want to move up and, and become a mechanical designer to further your career. And so, you know, after about four years, I decided to um, move on and uh, I, I found a job at uh, DBR uh, Engineering Consultants. And uh, there I was a mechanical designer and a commissioning agent. 
And essentially, uh, DBR already had a commissioning, a senior level commissioning agent in the Houston office. And I was currently in San Antonio. And so he mentored me, um, uh, you know, through the, the two years I was at DBR. And then also I did design engineering as well. Um, so the design engineering side ended up being uh, more boring than I thought it was going to be, where um, essentially I, I, I drew a lot on the computer and kind of sat alone. You know, they, they talk about um, how you'll be part of the design team, but really the only team portion of it is, you know, coordinating with electrical to uh, make sure your stuff isn't going to interfere with theirs and then coordinating with plumbing to make sure that they have a drain for your condensate. Um, so I kind of got tired of that quickly and I, I just wanted to focus on commissioning. And so I also wanted to move to Houston and um, I found uh, Pennington and Associates was looking for a commissioning agent. So I signed on with them and uh, became a project manager there for about two years. And then I got um, a message on LinkedIn from Paige Sutherland Page to give me um, an increase in salary and a decrease in responsibilities. So I just thought um, I could use the extra money and uh, it's, it's always better to do less work, I guess. <laughs> it's a win-win, so, win-win situation. Yeah. So I, uh, I went to Paige and then um, I love this company. Uh, the people there are amazing and it would it'd probably take a lot to really ever leave this company. And um, they even... You know, they, they're all aware that I started a side test and balance business and um, they were all for it. And so I have that on the side and I do, uh, you know, my main job, though, is still commissioning. Right. Now, and, and that, that allows you to also provide, you know, quote unquote, third party commissioning, right? Right. So, you know, and I, I, what I love about your, your journey necessarily and, you know, obviously, you know, uh, networking, you know, is key. <laughs> That's one of the things you can obviously see. Your journey benefited a lot. Um, you had a pretty, you know, direct, you know, path to where you were going. Um, there was not a lot of, you know, side, you know, um, you know, distractions as you as you went through. But the fact that you started in test and balance now, and um, you know, it, it's really to to me, it's it's kind of. Um, I don't know many mechanical engineers. Um, I don't know. Is, is that your degree in mechanical engineering? Yes. So I don't know many mechanical engineers who had a degree that would go work for a test and balance company. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the makeup of engineered air was? Yeah. Um, so engineered air balance pretty much only hires engineers. Um, they're, they're one of the top, level companies. And I think they're also one of the oldest companies that, uh, that do test and balance in the U S cause they were, they were started in 1956. And so I got all my base knowledge from them. And basically whenever I had an engineering question, there was always someone there that could, you know, do the math and, and work it out and they don't have to go to, you know, the technician's manual and do these, you know, just look at the little algebraic, formulas that are already, you know, established with the standard constants, you know, they could derive them. And, and that was nice to help me really see um, how everything 
uh, worked. And, and it really helped me out in engineering as well that I could see how airflow really moved. You know, I could traverse and, and really see how elbows affect airflow. And, um, and I take, you know, differential readings on, on coils for, for chilled water and hot water. And um, I could really see what the water essentially was doing and how it was how it would balance you know how annoying it was to balance in constant volume systems versus variable volume systems it was just interesting to see all the different things that it can do so and one of the other things that i like about it is that you know obviously you know you get that real world experience i i kind of find it funny that you know, it's like everybody thinks that the grass is always greener. They're like, oh, I want to become a design engineer. And that's going to be the, you know, that's going to be the pinnacle of my career. And you get there and you're like, mm, no, not, not, not so much. Um, you know, it, it's, you can make, you can, you can make money doing just about anything, you know, whether you're a skilled trade or whether you're an engineer. Um, it's just what you, what you like to do. Um, and I, I like the fact that you went into, you know, controls and or not controls, but test and balance. And then you saw the you know design engineer. You went there. Um, any any sort of any sort of uh, you know um, you know regrets or what was what were some of your concerns going from test and balance to becoming an engineer? Well, I was I was worried uh, about it, um, you know, initially. But I I always thought that. You know, I'm working with engineers. They still have, you know, very similar knowledge, and um, and they could help me with with any, you know, questions I had, which was, which was really nice. And it was just, um, you know, I guess one of the the regrets I had was the types of buildings that were done at that company were just, you know, pretty much the schools and office buildings. So they they weren't very complicated. Um, when I was at engineering advance, we were doing everything, you know, hospitals, um, which, which are extremely interesting, uh, laboratories and, um, you know, growth in indoor growth facilities, um, just all these interesting buildings that not a lot of people get to see, but when you're at a prestigious company, you get to see them. And, and that was the, one of the things that I liked about Paige is, you know, I got to continue that and, and go to these interesting buildings. You know, I've done some jobs at NASA, some jobs with Exxon, and um, and they always have interesting projects to work on. Yeah, I think that's one thing that people maybe don't understand or maybe miss on occasion is that you know when you're working for a design engineer, not all design engineers are the same. They they have different markets, they have different clients. Um, I know I've worked for for uh, different AE firms that you know. When you when you're going out the door, they're like, "Oh, you're gonna miss the type of work that you're doing," and it's like, you know what, you know, maybe maybe not, maybe not so much. You know, it, it's doing doing the same type of stuff. Um, you know, it can be rewarding, absolutely, and um, but you know, in the same regards, there are other companies that you just get a whole host of different, you know, interesting kind of uh, you know projects to work on. Right. Yep. And and. And so when I was talking to people at, you know, EAB, a lot of them, it, it seemed like the consensus was, you know, design engineer was, was the next step. And, 
from what I've seen is it's not truly the next step is you can actually stay and test and balance and make roughly the same amount of money. And in some cases, more money because you get overtime pay and, and double time on Sundays, you know, and, um, you can make just as much and, and, you know, see just as complicated of issues that they see over in engineering. And so it, it is just like, if you like working with your hands, stay in test and balance because you'll be sitting at a computer as a design engineer. And, and a lot of them actually don't go out into the field and review their jobs, you know, after they're complete, they don't even see, you know, the, the product of, of what they've accomplished. And, and that's kind of disappointing because you don't get that, that feeling of accomplishment like you do in test and balance. When you leave the site, you see everything working, you see all the temperatures, you know, in, in all the rooms, roughly the same. And it's, it's a good feeling. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's one of those things that, you know, as, as an engineer, ex exactly. You don't really see it. You don't get out in the field. Um, you know, only a select few actually get to go and review, you know, on a couple of, couple of times. Usually it's, it's after the, you know, or before the ceilings get put in and after everything is done is typical, um, you know, what you do as an engineer. And as a test and balance person, you actually get to see, you know, you have the finished design in your hands and you actually get to see the results because it's all, everything's done. You're just balancing everything and you get to see kind of, okay, here's how it evolved because it's typically, it's not going to be exactly the same. It's going to be, you know, the tense, the intent's going to be the same, but it's not going to be the same exactly. So that's that's the one fun thing I think at least about the test and balance that you'd be able to see that um, you know going out and 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 that is true and I should go back on what I said a little bit um, I never got to go out into the field because I was I was not the project manager and so I never got that nice uh, you know accomplished feeling it was as soon as I got one job out the door I was starting on the next. Yeah, and I, I never got to go out there. <laughs> and, and 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 just from I mean my experience, it's it's been you know that's not uncommon. You know you do you, that's exactly you know if you are not the the you know the most senior member if you're not you know, if you're not the person representing the project you're not probably going to get out into the field. And as a design engineer, that's absolutely critical. Um, you know that's probably one of your benefits of coming from a, you know, it probably made the transition so much better is that you have all this test and balance background and you're going into the design uh, field and you know exactly, you know, you put a VAV box down, you know exactly, you know, oh, I'm going to put it over here. Well, why, why are you going to put it over here? Well, you know, because there's light fixtures, there's piping, there's all these different things that I want to avoid. And you're able to kind of, you know, place things and organize things in a manner that, that makes sense to the installation of the project. And without that perspective, you just, you just can't get that. So it probably gave you a, a leg up. You know, I think most people get hung up on, you know, drawing. You know, they were not, they're not going to be able to draw you know, as a design engineer, I don't, I don't think anybody goes into, you know, being a design engineer knowing how to draw. Um, it's something that's that's taught along the way. You know, even even CAD jockeys had to start from, you know, square one, you know, right. with different software, with with everything. You know, you don't you when you go into a design engineering firm, you're probably going to have to learn a whole host of new software. And, you know, that's usually not a big deal. But it's not it's not something that's going to be held against you. 
because everybody has to go through that and you're going to catch up eventually. Um, so having that knowledge is kind of king. And I know you, you know, you and I have talked before about, you know, just it, the, having the experience of being a test and balance, uh, you know, person really, really does give you, give you that perspective. And I know that you had a, you had a story about, uh, you know, uh, one of your previous, uh, um, mentors saying something about, you know, test and balance and, and, uh, being an engineer and how every- Right. Yeah. My, my old boss, um, at EAB, um, engineer air balance, uh, basically said that he wished that all engineers started out in the field, you know, doing test and balance or mechanical contract or something in the field so they could really see, you know, how it was in the field and, and they wouldn't have as many, I guess, just kind of fundamental mistakes on the drawings that you think could be avoided if you had some field knowledge. But, but it's funny because while that's true, the problem with that is once you go into the field, it's more difficult to transition to design, even, even with a degree. I think I looked for a year and a half before finally a company took a chance on me and um, actually hired me. I had a lot of interviews and, and people basically said, well, you don't have experience with Revit, which is true, but I didn't know how to get experience with Revit because at the time there was no, you know, there's really no videos on YouTube. There was, you know, nothing I could do to, to practice that software. I had practiced some AutoCAD a little bit, um, but with Revit, it, there was nothing, especially like you can't, back then you couldn't get, um, a building model and then just draw ductwork through there and practice doing that because um, it, it just was difficult. So the only way I could really do it is either by paying a lot of money to take class or getting lucky and getting hired. Yeah. That, you know, that, that is, that is, that is hysterical, you know, and it's because I, I just, I, I listen to that and I'm like, you know, like I said, I'm like, nobody knows how to draw coming out of college. Nobody knows how to draw, <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, it used to be back in the day, you know, you'd have drafting classes, you know, I mean, drafting on a drafting board would be completely different, but you're just drawing, you're copying and pasting and cutting and doing lines and just squares and different, different symbols. You have to know the symbol library, and that has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to ultimately be a good engineer. You know, it's like one of those filters that just doesn't make sense. It's like, if you're going to, if you're, you're going to say, I don't have any Revit experience. Okay. Well, maybe I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be able to start drawing right away. Um, you know, but you know, what I do draw is actually going to make sense. So I'm going to actually save time. So if you're out there, if you're hiring people, you know, just put down the Revit a little bit, you know, don't, uh, you know, BIM modeling. Okay. You know, just, you know, slow your roll, focus on actual, you know, field experience, actual in field experience. Right. Yeah. And, and because I was able to pick it up quite fast and keep up with just about anyone in the end. So, right. It, 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 made, it, it makes no, it makes no sense. So if you're out there interviewing, just realize that don't, you know, don't, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, if you, if you, if you were being, if you were being a punk and just threw it in their face and go, you know, really, is that, is that, is that really the, you know, why you're not hiring me? Um, you know, because that just does not make any sense from, from a, you know, a logical standpoint. 
So, but one of the things that I, I want to do, um, I, I have a couple couple different topics that I wanted to pick your brain because um, I know that that you've had a lot of experience with you know actual you know commissioning and being in the field. So I wanted to kind of t- touch on some common issues you've seen, some uncommon issues, and then get some best practices. So I think that we have uh, lined up some some th- three different uh, common issues that you've seen, kind of occurring again and again so can you can you kind of dive into those for us yeah uh one the first common issue i've seen is uh chill water pipes and and duct work being installed over variable frequency drives and um really i kind of i kind of reference the nec 110.26 code which is really for elect, uh, dedicated electrical space equipment. You know, it, it's, it's, it's basically states not to install uh, piping um, and uh, duct work over electrical equipment, um, you know, to, to avoid condensation and, and things like that. And I, I've written that up in the field where, um, you know, you have a VFD and, and someone ran chill water piping over it and, which you could run into issues with that. Like if you run, you know, 42 degree water through that piping prior to it being insulated, if you, um, you know, if, if you're five years down the line and someone's been bumping that insulation or it's just deteriorated, it wasn't installed well and it's just deteriorated over time, you know, it can start to condensate and drip on those VFDs and, and ruin them, which, you know, obviously VFDs are not cheap. And, and no one wants that to happen. So what I've done on on jobs is I have always written up as a recommendation to install some shielding over the VFD to prevent that from happening if they do route um, chill water piping or ductwork over it. And I've had you know engineers argue with me when I reference the code and say that's not what the code's for. And but my response is is it's the intent, not necessarily that the code doesn't apply but it's it's the intent of the code is to protect this equipment in case condensation happens and i think the same thing could happen to a vfd absolutely you know and i think that yeah you know, i mean as commissioning agents we think of uh you know protecting the equipment from the owner's standpoint um you know it from from the engineer's standpoint it it might be something he might interpret that issue as oh i missed something it's going to cost extra money and that's going to reflect bad on me it's like you know i i can i cannot admit admit to it a mistake so i have to say that code doesn't apply to it so i didn't you know i didn't do anything wrong um when when the simple response was you know hey just let's protect this um you know because like you i've i've seen this over and over again and these vfds they're they're not they're not just you know put in you know you just don't have one VFD typically you're gonna have you're gonna have two VFDs three four you're gonna have a bank of VFDs that you need to protect and make sure right. that they don't get damaged um, they're probably one of the more um, susceptible pieces of equipment in a mechanical room so you you want to be able to protect them and baby them I mean there's there's people I've talked to different commissioning engineers about you know even the the dust you know being even even starting them up. And protecting them from, you know, the construction dust in the mechanical room because that's usually, typically, you know, let's be honest, it's the last place to get cleaned up in a uh, in a project. So there's a lot of dirt and debris and dust floating around, you know, messing up all the electronics. So 
Um, and you know, they're just little, you know, computer fans that are pulling the air through the, uh, you know, the circuitry, you know, to make these things work. So it's, it's really kind of like, mm, you know, don't start, don't start those VFDs up too early and, and let's protect them a little bit more. Right. Yeah. And I've, I've seen filters installed, you know, they, they, they put roll type media filter over the VFDs to protect them. And I've actually seen them installed on the outlet instead of the inlet. So, uh, <laughs> I've moved those before. Yeah, just you know, <laughs> use your hand. You know, just just figure out where the airflow is going, okay, and figure out what the intent. We're not we're not trying to you know clean the mechanical room air. Um, so so what other common issues do you have that you have? Um, another one would be um, outside air control uh, for demand control ventilation. Um, essentially. You know, a, a lot of times I see sequences are pretty vague for, for this type of control. You know, they just say, uh, please provide demand control ventilation and, um, you know, outside air damper shall modulate to maintain airflow, airflow set point. And then in the demand control ventilation sequence, they say, you know, if, um, if uh, low parts per million in the space, like, you know, below 700 parts per million in the space, damper shall go to 25% of max. And then if, um, you know, as the parts per million rise, the CO2 rises in the space, then damper shall go to 75% instead of just saying, Hey, just modulate maybe on a linear reset, uh, between this CFM value and this CFM value. Um, instead of using damper positions, when you have airflow stations, and you've already stated to control based on airflow and your outside air sequence. And so it's aligning those two sequences properly. And then also um, verifying that your outside air set point is being maintained through all modes of operation uh, for the air handler. So let's say you have a, a variable volume air handler that's going to modulate between, you know, 30% speed and 100% speed. Well, obviously it's going to pull in less airflow when it's at 30% speed. And I've seen situations where, you know, the outside air damper is a hundred percent open. The return is a hundred percent open and it's just not getting its outside airflow set point. And so, you know, some people to, um, you know, correct that they just, they either software link or manually link the return air damper and the outside air damper. But, the problem with that is if your return is sized for full flow, full supply flow, and your outside air is sized for you know roughly 30% of the flow, then you're actually adding inlet restriction to the air handler. So the fan has to pull harder, which is not good. So I guess the suggestion would be um, in the sequence, you could say, you know, modulate outside air based on outside airflow set modulate the outside airflow damper uh, based on outside airflow set point. And if you cannot maintain outside airflow set point and your damper is a hundred percent open, then you can modulate the return. So you don't modulate the return damper and the outside air damper at the same time. You make sure that they operate independently, but um, you're always keeping one damper a hundred percent open so that there's less restriction on the unit. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think that, that when you were talking about the, um, you know, demand control ventilation, I think that engineers out there, 
make sure that you spend a little extra time understanding what demand control ventilation is and what your equipment can do. Right. And, and I've seen, um, you know, a lot of times that the engineer will not put maximum outside air set points and minimum outside air set points. So I've been on jobs where, you know, they, they've been occupied and they have the minimum outside airflow set point is zero. And so then, you know, when the building is not as occupied, um, you know, you're basically getting no outside air into the building and the exhaust is pulling the building negative, which then you'll get infiltration and potentially mold issues, especially down south uh, with all the humidity that we have. Right. Uh, so, so it's important to make sure that, you know, when the unit's at minimum, that you're always maintaining your building pressurization. So that's the importance of having a good sequence and making sure you're properly pressurizing your building at all times in all modes. All right. So what what's the what's the third common issue you have you have for us today? Uh, the third the third one I have is uh, integration with packaged equipment. So I'm seeing this more and more where um, uh, the the coordination between you know the the mechanical contractor and the controls contractor and the engineer for package equipment just doesn't seem to be happening on a lot of jobs. And, and so essentially the engineer has a sequence of operation. He wants to be, um, he, he wants, and the, the mechanical contractor is going to purchase this package equipment that's supposed to be able to meet the sequence of operation. And then the controls contractor is just going to bid to monitor this equipment where I see more and more, pretty much all the jobs I've done, where the controls contractor actually has to take over control um, of some part of that equipment to be able to do the full sequence. And it's not properly looking over the sequence of operation prior to bidding the job that really creates an issue. And some jobs I've had, you know, they delay a year getting this equipment to fully operate correctly just because there's that fight between who's going to take control of this unit and who's going to control what. Um, One example that we had was um, the engineer had an airflow station in the return and an airflow station in the supply. And he wanted those two subtracted to get the outside airflow and control you know, the outside air damper based on that number. And so there's not a lot of equipment out there um, that has an input for a return airflow station and a supply airflow station that can also do the math and then control the dampers based on that. So the controls contractor had to take over the dampers and the airflow station inputs to be able to do that control. Yeah, the, the, you know, all too, all too often it's, you know, you ask controls contractors what exactly they can do, and they're like, well, we can do anything, you know, for a price. But, you know, <laughs> especially when you're talking about, okay, everybody just, you know, the and it's, it's it really falls down to the engineer. The engineer specifying a certain piece of equipment. They put it on the drawings. They put it on the schedule. Contractor, they just buy what the engineer tells them to buy. And they don't necessarily know if it can do what, you know, the control sequence says it can do. And then you get into this problem where you, you put it on the controls contractor to make it work, and they just go, not with this piece of equipment. 
you know, and it's, and it's when you're, when you're talking about taking over, you know, you make it sound, you, you, you kind of make it sound a little bit more pleasant than you is. I mean, or that, that more pleasant than it actually is because you're ended up ripping out the intelligence of the existing piece of equipment, you know, and these are, these are typically going to be, you know, packaged rooftops. They're finely tuned. They know exactly what they're going to do. They can do what they do very well. But when you try to force a sequence on it, you have to rip out all the intelligence and then replace it with something that probably wasn't in the, you know, the, the, the bid scope at the beginning of the job. Right. Yep. And, and that just goes into the, that coordination and, and properly reviewing the sequence prior to, you know, providing that piece of equipment. And, um, you know, don't, don't order the dampers or, or make sure that, I mean, sorry, not the dampers, don't order the actuators or make sure that the actuators you order, you know, that the controls knows that they will have to take those over and do that logic. Right. All right. And, so, okay. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, so, so what, um, what are some of some of the uncommon issues? Let's. I you mean, know, we've we've talked about uh, a lot of the common issues that I think a, a lot of people who've been in the industry, you know, they've they've typically seen. But anybody who hasn't, this is probably new to them. But some some kind of uh, uncommon issues that you've seen from from project to project. So uh, one uncommon issue um, I had done in an airplane hangar a little while back, and essentially um, in the hangar portion of the building. Um, they had these bay doors that would open and obviously an airplane would come in and um, then they would close. And so when they closed, they wanted these two air handlers that served the space to go into what was called a purge mode and essentially quickly get that hanger down to, um, you know, a comfortable temperature. Um, so the issue was that the lag chiller kept tripping off and they were trying to figure out what was happening. And because um, they'd have to go out there and, and reset it. Um, so after a little bit of testing, we found that when the air handlers went into this purge mode, they would, you know, open their chill water valves and they would require a lot of GPM. And so obviously the lag chiller would stage on and, you know, lag pump would stage on to maintain that flow and temperature. And then when purge mode temperature was reached, then they would just close, you know, quickly. And all of a sudden that would hit low flow on the chiller and it would trip off. And so we basically recommended to, you know, slowly close that valve so that the chiller would have time to, you know, uh, stage down and, and, and shut off naturally when it went below pretty much 40%. Yeah, I mean those the chillers are are notorious. I mean anybody who's done done commissioning with chillers understands that you really can't force the chiller to do anything. It's it's one of the most boring pieces of equipment that you're going to try to control and manipulate. Um, you know, it, you know it, it takes it takes a long time. Yeah, you might as well be watching paint dry. Um, but definitely, you know that's that's you know if you're going to try to force something. Uh, force a chiller to do something and force it to do it quickly. Um, you're going to be on the losing side of, of any sort of battle. Right. All right. So what, what else do you got for uncommon issues? Um, another one I've run into, uh, cause I just don't do VRF systems that often, even though they're becoming more prevalent. Um, 
So I guess I'll, I'll probably be running into them, you know, in more office buildings and schools uh, in the future. But uh, one issue that we had, which was for a, a daycare, essentially, um, we, we weren't able to um, functionally test this building because it wasn't ready until about six months after it had been operational and, and occupied. And um, they had had a lot of issues with the spaces being extremely warm, like roughly, you know, 78, 80 degrees, way too hot. And um, so when we started our functional testing, we wanted to figure out immediately what was the issue with, with that. And um, so what we found was um, these units are, are concealed ducted units serving the spaces and they had a dedicated outside air unit feeding them air and they also had a return obviously and so the the dedicated outside air unit was designed to feed them 55 degree air and the return came back at you know 72 to 75 degrees and so it mixed at about 60 degrees and that's what the return sensor would see and it essentially became a mixed air sensor so we would always see about 60 degrees and we found out that the unit was operating based on its return temperature sensor instead of its space temp sensor. And so that just, it was the way that it was set up initially. And so we, we uh, you know, reset up the thermostat to operate based on space temperature and that pretty much immediately fixed the issue. But it was just surprising to see that, you know, after six months, um, you know, it, it took a couple hours to figure that out, you know. Right. You know, you, you think, I mean, usually with the, the VRF systems, you know, I mean, aside from the fact that you have a, a dedicated outside air system, VRF in and of itself is is pretty, you know, cut and dry. There, There's not too much, too much about it. But, you know, if you don't get it set up right, it's not, it's not going to work. And that's, you know, I see that, I see that a, a lot. Um, with some of the VRF systems that I've I've worked on, and then you know there again, you know it's just who's setting it up. You know they don't really understand what the sequence is, what it's supposed to be doing, and you know they don't you know they don't have that um, you know resource um, or knowledge or even the ability to know that that's a question that she, they should be asking. So I think that's... right. And oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, uh, um, right. And and the. The VRFs are, are really interesting systems, and they, they work extremely well. But it's they, they have a few things that are different than normal systems, like like their fan control. You know, it, it's not always um, the same as like putting in a, a, a series fan powered box. You know, that just stays at a constant speed. But if you you put in these VRF systems and you put them to auto, well, then the fan is going to be modulating up and down. And so the airflow can drastically change in the space. And so if you, you know, you're designing those grills for a specific throw, then, you know, it's just one of those things that engineers may want to think about on their sequences is saying, hey, these always need to be set at a single speed or it's okay if they're put in auto to modulate between, you know, 20% and 100%. All right. Good thing. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, Let's move on to best practices. What sort of best practices do you have to share with us today? Um, so the first one, you know, I, I had heard a while back um, from another commissioning agent is um, 
he always said that, you know, he, he looked at his issues log at the end of the job and, you know, he, he found a hundred, 200 issues and, you know, he thought he was doing a good job. He found all the issues and, and would get them corrected. But really when he, he thought about it more and more, he, he thought, um, you know, maybe I'm not doing such a good job because if I was doing a good job, I should have zero issues because I would have done all my pre-work, my design reviews, everything would have found all the issues prior to the end. And I would have, you know, coordinated, helped coordinate with the controls contractor and everything to where there would be no issues. Now, we all know that's impossible to get zero issues at the end, but you could try and, and get close. So the way that we try and do that is we implemented a, uh, a, a page, we implemented a control coordination meeting, which essentially we, we invite the controls contractor, the engineer of record, uh, the mechanical sub, you know, sometimes test and balance. And, um, and, and we always invite maintenance to join in if they want to. Um, and then what we do is this is after we've written our functional tests, we'll sit down with the current sequence of operations, our functional tests, and we'll just go through them, you know, pretty much line by line and just make sure everyone is interpreting sequence the same way. So this happens before programming so that when, you know, controls understands the intent of the sequence and then they know what they have to do to uh, move forward and program. And so hopefully there's no surprises when we go to functionally test. They can take our uh, functional test and run through it themselves, verify everything's working, and then they call us out and then they just demonstrate a fully operational system. And, and we'll fly through it. We'll we'll pass everything and, and move on to the next job. This is a excellent best practice. And, and and if anybody isn't doing this, they should put it on their list. I mean, if flat out, um, you know, one of the one of the issues, you know, for, just from a multiple multiple standpoint, you know, you have the design engineer who doesn't always, you know, put every single detail, every single set point. Um, on his uh, sequence of operation. And this kind of covers that. If you have the temperature controls contractor kind of having questions or, hey, we can't do that, or how about we do this, that gives them the opportunity to go back and, you know, program it and program it once. You know, I mean, if anybody has dealt with temperature controls contractors at all, it's if you can, if you're making them do something twice, it's going to cost you. Uh, if you can make them do it once, um, then there, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of leeway that they can, you know, put in there. Even if it wasn't in the original contract documents, they'll go ahead and 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 make that make that change because ultimately they're going to be the ones called in if something doesn't work. So they're very forgiving when you do this ahead of time. And then the then the third aspect is that you have the and you know this you know this can play out in various different ways, but you in in, in by you know like what you said, inviting the maintenance people there. You might have a piece of equipment that they don't know exactly what it does or how it operates, and and they may have some preconceived you know notions on hey, I wanted to do this, and if they understand from that standpoint before anything goes in, um, how things operate. You know, you get a lot more buy-in from the owner saying, okay, this is exactly the system that they they said I was going to get. I know how it operates. And, you know, they get a little bit of uh, learning ahead of time. 
So it really does, you know, this this training aspect to the maintenance crew really does help out. So, I mean, you really got the trifecta there as far as this controls coordination meeting. So if you're thinking about it, if you're thinking about something new to do um, and you aren't doing this, um, definitely go ahead and, and, and start implementing this, you know, controls coordination meeting. You know, um, I think I think it's a great idea. Yeah, we've had a lot of good success with it. Um, you know, as, especially since the engineer is there, if, if changes need to be made, they can be made pretty much on the fly. We, we take meeting minutes and we copy everyone and send them to the engineer. So if he needs to, you know, do a quick, um, you know, turnaround on, on, on a sequence or something like that, he has all the notes just to go off of and he can make any edits he needs and quickly send that out so that the controls can implement it in their programming. Um, but we, we have had some issues with it in the past where, especially on integration jobs, we, we say, Hey, here's the sequence, you know, Mr. Controls contractor and mechanical contractor can, can you guys pull this off? And they just say, yeah, no problem. But then when we get to the end of the job, they, they don't even get close. And then they say the equipment isn't even capable of doing it. And why didn't you bring this, you know, up months previous when we had this meeting? It, it would have saved us a lot of headache. And so it, it, the meeting is what, you know, everyone makes it. Yeah. You, you got to be, you got to be honest, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So everybody has to be on the same page. All right. So uh, what about the other best practice that you have for us? Uh, the, the next one is, is more of a, a test and balance best practice. And it, I, I think it's, it's best if, uh, if there was more traversing done on projects and, you know, the, the more reports I review, um, the more I see, you know, less and less traversing listed on there where it's, you know, less and less pedo tube traversing, you know, they'll still do traversing, but they do it with a bell grid or a anemometer and, the problem with that is those tools are really, um, you know, they're proportioning tools. They're not calibration tools. So they, they don't truly give you a good, um, accurate airflow. It, it's best always to do a pitot tube or, or airfoil traverse. And, um, you know, especially when you're, you know, establishing your AKs at the beginning of the job and, um, and then, you're at the end of the job, you're finaling the, the air handler, you can do a total traverse and just verify your box total is good. And, um, and it gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling when, you know, you, you, um, you do your traverse and you find it's plus or minus 5% from your box total. It's just, it's a good feeling to know that you did everything right, essentially. And you can just walk away and know that it'll work. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a little bit just to make sure that everybody is on the same page here. Um, so the, when you talk about AKs uh, for the diffusers, what, what are you talking about? So, yeah, um, if, if you look at the, you know, the schedule, you'll, you'll have a device um, schedule for your grills, you know, all throughout the job. And, and so, you know, usually there's like, you know, four or five, sometimes more. And um, if it's just a standard two by two grill, then, your AK or, or correction factor for that grill for your, your flow hood is probably about a, a 1.0. Um, but if you have, you know, maybe a linear slot diffuser, then 
your correction factor for that grill may be a little different. And so what we do to get an AK for a linear slot diffuser is essentially we find, you know, a, a, a slot diffuser that's doing roughly the, you know, a, an average of the design CFM. So if they're all designed for like, you know, 200 CFM, you know, 100 to 200 CFM, then we pick one at, at like 150 CFM. And then we find one with a, um, with a long duct run, nice, you know, so we can have nice laminar flow. And then we'll do a traverse, right? A pitot tube traverse. And then, um, then we'll read that grill with our flow hood and um, we'll compare the two. And so generally around those, you get, you know, plus or minus 10%. And so if you got, if you read, you know, 165 CFM with your traverse and 150 CFM with your, um, with your flow hood, then your AK is about a, a you know, a 1.1 that you'll apply to all the grills going forward. And then um, it, it just, it just gives you a greater accuracy as opposed to being 10% off all the time, then you'll be right on what your traverse is. So when you do a, a total traverse at the end, you should line up. Now, is that something that you're going to see on the balance report, that AK uh, correction factor? Sometimes you do, um, you know, at engineered air balance, they always put it on their reports, um, but it's not on every report. And it makes me more wary when I, I don't see AKs, but I see slot diffusers and sidewalls where I know a hood reading is less accurate. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's, it's very important to understand that, you know, with, with anything, you know, whether it be commissioning or test and balance, especially test and balance, you, you have to have this sort of scientific method going on, um, that you want it to be repeatable. You want, you want your document to stand on its own, to say, hey, you know what? If you're going to take a reading, here's the correction factor, and you should get a similar reading um, to what I had. You know, it's not going to be exact, but it's going to be a, a very similar reading, and it it really goes a long way to for repeatability. So I think that's 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 very important. Um, right, right, and and the best you can really hope for in the field is is about plus or minus three percent. That's that's about as accurate as a traverse gets. So now backing up and just understanding, now it's kind of hard to, you know, every time we try to describe a Velgrid, um, you know, or an ana amana, ugh, anemometer. Anemometer. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's one of those things that's, that's, that's kind of hard to describe, but we'll, we'll link it up in the, uh, the show notes if you want to actually see a picture, or you can just Google it yourself. Either way. Um, but those are definitely, those are exterior um, ways of measuring airflow. They're not, they're not as, uh, accurate. Typically, you know, I, I see them as, you know, um, they're the, they're the options of last resorts, so to speak. Right. And, and actually there are some guys at EAB, I remember talking to, they said that they would never use a Velgrid, um, ever again. You know, they, they had one bad experience and said, I will never use that tool and so they they only use a, a vein anemometer essentially so now the traverse is a little bit different because that's more of intrusive so a traverse if you if you don't understand and you're talking about traverse and pedo tubes pedo tubes are kind of what they sound like they're just tubes with holes in them but you're able to drill a hole or a series of holes in a piece of ductwork to get an average velocity and so that's that's 
you know, you actually get inside the ductwork, um, you know, whereas, you know, the Velgrid and some of the anemometers um, are kind of exterior. You're, you're looking at it from the outlet side of it. Right. Yep. And yeah, so a pitot tube will measure the, the total pressure and then the static pressure and it'll subtract the two at the digital manometer and, and it'll uh, calculate a velocity pressure. And then from there, you'll you'll put it into a little formula and, and you'll calculate your um, your velocity and then multiply that by the area and you have the CFM. Voila, it's like magic. Now, are those yeah. are, are those some of the things when you look at the look at a bouncing report? Are those some of the things that you see that you know are identified whether it's not whether or not it's a Traverse or uh, a Velgrid? Are those standard? Um, yeah. So yeah, looking at at a Traverse, um, generally they they will say at the top what instrument that they used and. Um, and for the most part, you know, just about everybody just lists the velocity. They don't list the velocity pressure anymore. Um, engineered air balance will still list the velocity pressure, and then they do the four thousand five times the square root of velocity pressure will equal, you know, your feet per minute. Um, it, and so it's it's just kind of nice to see that that kind of the old school method is still being used, and um, and I, I would just wish more companies would do it. It's not as necessary because they just shoot it. The manometers these days just shoot it out as a feet per minute. But um, I think you lose a little bit when you kind of forget that calculation, I guess. Yeah. It's always good to have that in your back pocket. All right. So uh, any any final words that you have for us today? I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk with us and give us some of your experience um, doing commissioning. Um, anything, anything, uh, uh, you want to say, or, uh, maybe, a, a best way for people to, to connect with you? Yeah. Well, uh, real quick, I, I did want to say hi to, uh, this guy, Brandon flood, which, um, he actually turned me on to your, um, uh, podcast. Thank you. Brandon. Um, yeah, he, he works for climate tech. He's a, he's an excellent programmer, which is a, is a controls contractor. Um, but yeah, I, I just want to say hi to him, and um, and then people can reach me on on LinkedIn, um, also uh, www.pagethink.com is um, uh, the architectural firm that I do commissioning for, and my side company that does test and balance is um, www.eb-cx.com, and then you can also find that company on Facebook. All right, and we will link that up to the show notes. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, Thomas, and uh, best of luck to you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just thanks for sharing some of the information today. No problem. Thank you for having me. All right, thanks again to Thomas Cocker for taking the time to chat with us. Check out the show notes for some of the links that we mentioned during the show. You can find those show notes over at hvac360.com slash 141 for episode 141. All right, thanks so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. If you know somebody who's looking to to get educated, uh, consider sharing this episode with them. Or maybe they're just thinking about becoming a commissioning engineer and they just don't know how to do it. Uh, So definitely Thomas's example gives a great um, case to how you can actually navigate the entire uh, system, as it were. 
Also, as I mentioned at the top of the show, please consider subscribing to my list over at HVAC360.com for more trick-or-treats in the form of weekly updates and other games and stuff like that. So, um, Also, two other things. If I'd be greatly honored if people would leave me a rating and review on Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And uh, also, jump on over to YouTube. Um, I'm downloading these episodes to YouTube. Even if you don't listen to them there, I'd greatly appreciate you subscribing because once I get the subscribers up, then I can do some more fun things for everyone. All right, well, that's a wrap for this episode of HVAC 360. I'm Matt Nelson, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. And as always, know what you build and share what you know.